Hi, beautiful beings. Welcome to the Joanne Oswald Jones podcast. I'm Joanne, your host, and it is so great to have you here. So, welcome back for another episode. As you know, this show and the conversations that we have are all about human potential, about personal growth and inner strength and overcoming adversity, and really just how powerful and magnificent we all really are. And with that in mind, today's guest is a perfect example of how much strength we have within us. I'm super excited and so pleased to be introducing the incredible Tim Lodgen to you all. Tim is currently setting the world light and inspiring thousands and thousands of people around the globe with his personal story of overcoming a 27-year cycle of alcoholism, depression, bipolar disorder, addiction to drugs and pain medication, and several suicide attempts. The conversation is raw, it's heartfelt, it's inspiring, it's powerful, it's jaw-dropping, and it's totally authentic. So let's jump right in. Tim, it is so great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today because, as you know, that my podcast is all about strength and it's all about overcoming challenging and adversity. And boy, oh boy, have you been on a journey of finding your strength within. I mean, wow, we've got 27 years of, you know, addiction and challenge and stress and depression. And would you take us back to the beginning and share some of your story with us so that the viewers can listen to really the the tremendous pressure that you've been under for so many years and how you just overcame that and how you found your strength within. But take us back to the beginning because I want to hear all about it. This is incredible what you've achieved. Absolutely. And I want to say thank you for having me to share my story today. I really appreciate that. And I'm truly humbled to be be able to share my story with so many people. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I I grew up in a pretty normal family. Um, my, my father was a police officer. Um, now, kind of not normal. My mother was a professional bodybuilder as I was growing up. And we're talking the early 80s, so women bodybuilders were not common in the day. So she was kind of a big deal in the 80s, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, but there was no drugs. There was no alcohol in my house. There was never beer in the refrigerator. Um, there was never liquor in the cabinet. They, like, my parents did not drink. Um, I, I've seen my mother, I think maybe had five beers in her entire life and she's 73 and my, my father, I would occasionally see him have a drink at like a Christmas family party or a birthday, but there was no alcoholism in my immediate family. So I didn't grow up around it. Now at the age of six, my father and mother did separate. Um, and I have an older brother who's almost 11 years older than me. So he was already a junior in high school. I'm in first grade. And I, and the reason I'm telling you that is because I held on to that for a very long time. And I thought as a young boy that it was my fault that my mother and father got a divorce. I thought, did I not listen enough? Did I not clean my room? Did I not do the chores? Did my father not love me? Why didn't he stick around? for my life, but he stuck around for my older brother's life. Like, what was wrong with me? And I really held on to that for a very long time. And as I got older, I used that to drink and drug. Um, I, that was a part of it. 
It's so interesting that you say that because it is in those formative years where we, as children, we see what's going on around us and we think that we're responsible. I remember thinking exactly the same as you when I was five and my parents divorced. I remember in my little five-year-old head thinking, if I'd been smarter, had I been funnier, had I been, had I been cleverer, could I have stopped this from happening? So I, yeah, I relate. And people, I think, um, I don't know if in your experience you've come across that, but sometimes people diminish, not on purpose, but they diminish the emotion that the child is going through at that time. They diminish the, the trauma of it, you know, and how that um, in those former years, they don't think the child actually is aware of what's going on around them when, of course, they are, right? Absolutely. And, and I have to look at my parents' generation. They didn't talk about their feelings. You know, if there was things going on in the family, they hid it. They didn't discuss it. They didn't want their dirty laundry out there. They wanted their family to look like everything was okay and there was no problem. So I, my parents grew up in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and that just wasn't something that was expressed and talked about. And you didn't talk about you didn't talk to your children about it. So I, I, I grew up, you know, suppressing my feelings. I really absolutely did. You know, and there was times where, my father would call and say, I'm coming to pick you up, buddy, for the weekend, you know, and I'd pack my bags and I'd wait at the front door. Hour would go by, the second hour would come, and then the phone would ring. Hey, I'm sorry, I can't come get you. I, I got to work overtime or something came up. This happened so many times that when my mother said my father was coming to pick me up for the weekend, I wouldn't even bother packing because I was just waiting for that phone call for him to cancel. And that, again, instilled in me that maybe my father didn't love me. Maybe he, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with me. So the way that I dealt with it is I, I got involved in sports. Um, I, and, and for me, I excelled at every single, every single sport that I ever did. I, I went 100 miles an hour. Like I played baseball. I was the all-star pitcher. I played football. I was the all-star running back. Um, when I boxed, um, I didn't, I wasn't just a, a, a boxer. I became a junior Olympic boxer and a golden glove boxing champion. Um, I started skateboarding and I didn't just skateboarding. I, I became sponsored by a whole bunch of companies down here and then I almost became professional. I was skating with professional skateboarders from around the world. I did everything to excess. I think because I was looking for, um, you know, just validation. Validation, validation. absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't think I think, of it. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, excelling, it, it was almost like trying to prove to others that, yes, you know, I'm worthy. So the better I am, the more love that someone will give to me. So it's that external validation, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I was always looking for that. I, I really was. And, you know, going through schools, like, like middle school and high school, I I was a very popular person. Um, I, I just had... I get along with everybody. I, I don't like confrontation, but if confrontation brings itself to the head, I finish it. And I've always been that way my entire life. I just, I try to treat people as if I would want to be treated. And if they treat me bad, then I, I completely switch and I take care of the situation at hand. So I've always been able to handle myself in that, that aspect. And drugs and alcohol for me was not even on the, well, on the radar, I wanted nothing to do with it. My ninth grade of high school, um, they had a welcome to high school freshman party. And I went to it, and that was the very first time I tried alcohol. So and how old were you then? 
How old were you? Um, going into ninth grade, I was 13, 14. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So 13 or 14, I was going into high school. And um, I drank beer, and I got extremely sick. And I remember my mother picking me up the next day from the gentleman's house. And she just looked at me. She's like, you drank alcohol last night, didn't you? I was like, yeah. She says, well, I'm not going to punish you because your rest of your day is completely ruined. You're going to feel it. And hopefully that's enough to keep you from ever drinking again. So I spent the whole entire – actually, her punishment was we were having a cookout, and she needed 50 ears of, of corn to be shucked. So she's like, here's 50 ears of corn, here's a bag for you to shuck the corn, and here's a bag for you to throw up. And I sat in the basement. I sat in the basement, I shucked 50 ears of corn and got sick the entire day. So that was, that was her punishment. But, um, I didn't touch alcohol again until my senior year of high school. Now the, the summer before senior year, I had signed up for the United States Marine Corps. So I, I knew once I graduated high school, a month after graduation, I was going to boot camp. I was joining the military. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have some fun this, this, this senior year. I'm going to, I'm going to go to some parties. I'm just going to blow off some steam because at the end of the year, you know, shit's going to hit the fan. I'm, I'm, I'm going in the military. Yeah. Yeah. So I started going to parties and, and I started drinking some beer and I wasn't doing it to get popular. I, I was a very popular person. So it wasn't to be accepted. I just wanted to blow off some steam because I really figured, you know, my life's really going to change. So I started drinking and um, got introduced to marijuana, started smoking pot, got introduced to LSD. I tried some, I tried LSD, mushrooms, um, pain pills, PCP, like all this stuff was going around my senior year of high school, but it all stemmed with once I got that alcohol in my system, I was like, well, what else is at this party? Because I want to try it to get it out of my system because next year I'm going away. And that's what I. Oh, okay. So it wasn't, it was just curiosity. It absolutely. Wasn't, it wasn't even a need to fulfill this, this childhood void within you. It was just curiosity at the time. I, I, I just wanted to see and get it out of my system because for me, I thought it was a phase. I was like, let me just get it out of my system, have fun. That way it's, done and over with and I have no more curiosity about it. Okay. Now I graduate high school and I go into the Marines. The drugs 100% stopped. Um, there was no doing drugs in the military but my alcoholism skyrocketed by 10 times. Once I graduated boot camp and I got stationed at my base in North Carolina, as soon as we got done at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we left the base and went to the bars and the strip clubs and the mottos around the military base are, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. Yeah. So at 18, 19, 20 years old, they had no problem serving us if we were in the military. Um, their only rule was you couldn't stand in the bar with a beer in your hand in case the authorities walked in. So you had to drink your beer and set it back down at the table and act like it wasn't yours. But yeah. they, they served us. And as young men, we saw our sergeants at the same bars whose late 20s, young 30s, and they were encouraging us to just get it all out because we worked and trained so hard during the day. It's time for us to release. Just make sure you're up at 4 a.m. in the morning to go running and do what you have to do. As long as you're doing that, they didn't deter us from drinking alcohol. So 18, 19, and 20 is when my alcoholism really shut up. I was drinking every single day. And drinking to throw up or pass out, but I was still taking care of my responsibilities. 
why what was alcohol doing for you at that point what you know so you know it's that whole you, you take that first sip was it that just oh, I'm an adult it's been a tough day oh that tastes good what what was it beginning to do for you at that point I mean for the you to, to drink to the point where you were throwing up was it you know uh, uh, joining the military um you know they, they 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 break you down and build you back up into what they they need you to be. Yeah. Um, and, and being in the Marine Corps, we were we were broke down and built up to be killers. We were broke down and built up to be warriors, and go in first and take care of the situation. You know, no emotion. Do what we're asked to do, and um, no thought process. Just do it and get it done quickly. So drinking for me just um, and it heightened that that I was ten foot tall and bulletproof. That nothing could stop me that I was unstoppable and, and it made me feel even more um, I w- I, enraged keeps coming to my head and it keeps coming in my head. Um, more, more of a, of a, of a monster, more of. And that's what I was thinking. As you were saying that I was thinking it's like the pressure they put you under is to get you to the point where I suppose one would break but they make you so strong in the process that you don't break, but then suddenly you have this persona of, yes, you're an unbreakable monster, right? Yeah, yeah, and and that's what they want. Yeah. You know, that, um, I, I was an 0311, which is an infantryman, and in the case of war, my life expectancy was three seconds because we are the first ones off the, off the boat, off, you know, off the helicopters, were the first ones in the front line taking fire and giving fire. So my my life expectancy was a three second life expectancy in the case of war. So I sorry, I just have a very quick question there on that note because I'm just listening to what you said, which was you put yourself in a situation in the Marines of being built into this incredible being, okay, that would take a bullet for his country, that would withstand the most extreme pressure when you were doing that when you were training for that did it ever cross your mind why was that another seeking external validation was that another the wounded young tim what do you understand what i'm saying what what was that about you know that i'm glad you actually asked that question because i've thought about it a little bit but but not into detail you know every man in my family was in the military. My brother, my father, my grandfathers on both sides. And they were all in the army, every single one of them. And when I joined the Marines, my dad said, well, why aren't you in the army? I said, because I want to be the best of the best. I want, I want to join, I want to join the hardest of the hard military. And, you know, I want to be a Marine. I don't want to be an army soldier. I want to be the best of the best. And I've always been like that my entire life. If I do something, I want to do it a hundred percent. If not 110, I want to give it my all. And I, I, I truly believe that I was, I mean, I was born that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was just, that's my personality. Um, and it's, it's, I believe that's what saved my life. Um, in the end is, is, you know, I, I, I have given up at, at points and I've tried to take my life. But I've always bounced back like, like a true warrior would. I always, 
looked what happened and made myself better because of it. And I truly believe that's what helped me survive the 27 years of addiction and mental illness is because something inside of me just keeps fighting and fighting and fighting. And I honestly sometimes don't know where it comes from. Um, it's your higher self, isn't it? It's your it's your authentic self, your true power. Um, it's it's a power much bigger than you, your physical could ever actually even fathom or that we could either, you know, fathom, you know. It's absolutely. Kind of, it's the divine within us. That's the what, what our real power is. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was never a religious or spiritual person. I mean, I, I thought there was something out there. I thought, you know, our souls came from a different place. And, yeah. But the more I get sober, the more I, I live in recovery and the more things that happen to me. I believe in a spiritual universe that there's there's something out there that uh-huh. either watch, watches over us or guides us into the direction that we were always meant to do or always meant to be. Mm-hmm. And it actually keeps me grounded more. I actually have faith now that I, I am on the path that I was destined to go to where I was lost for so long and didn't know my purpose and didn't know what I was supposed to be doing in life. Mm-hmm. And now that helps me to stay grounded and, and to keep on my path in life. Right. And, um, you know, and, and bad. Well, I was going to say, um, t- just to take me back to the story. Cause I, this is, yeah. so you were, you, so you were in the bar. So you'd be 18, 19 and you would be drinking your beer. This is where the addiction started to really kick in. Right. So Absolutely. You, so you started to think, I'm, you know, I'm so strong. I've become this machine and I'm even stronger than the alcohol. So that's what was going on in your head, right? So what, so what happened then? So 18, you're experiencing all of this. Yeah. So 18, 19 and 20, that went on for three years. I mean, we, we drank every day. And then, um, at the age of uh, 20, we got deployed to Somalia in 1995 for six months, um, for Operation United Shield. And this was after, um, it was peacetime or, or what they would call peacetime. There was no active war going on, but it was still a hostile territory. Uh, I saw the ramifications of war. I saw what it did to people. I saw what it did to, to lives and families and, and bodies. And it was just, I'll never forget the images in my head of what I had to see and go through. Um, I, I, we get done the deployment in six months. I come home. And three months later, I get discharged from the military. I come home at 20 years old. And, you know, the first month for me was like, ah, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm out of the military. I don't have to cut my hair. I don't have to shave every single day. I can sleep in. I don't have to run five miles today. Like, it was actually a really good decompression, you know, month for me. Yeah. The, sec- the second month kicked in, and I was like, oh, shit, I got to get a job. Um, I got to get a vehicle. I got to start paying rent at my mom's house because I moved back into my mom's house. I have to start getting some responsibilities. You know, the first month's over, like vacation's over. Yeah. And then the third month kicked in and I got severely depressed. Um, I didn't want to shave. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to leave my room. I was drinking every day and I started smoking pot again because now I don't have to take drug tests. So I find myself in this depression and I'm lost and, and I don't know what my purpose is now because here I was just, this Marine that, that had a purpose and, 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 and a goal and, and we had something to do. And now I don't know what I'm going to do with my life at 20, almost 21 years old. So I find myself one day in my room and, and I'm 
depressed and I don't know what to do and I'm lost and I don't have a purpose. And I get up and I go to my, in my stepfather's armoire and I grab his gun and, and I, and I sit it on the lap of my, my leg and, um, I'm looking at it and I'm contemplating using it because I'm really truly lost as a human being. And luckily I had a girlfriend and I called her and I said, Hey, um, I don't know what's going on, but I'm sitting here with a gun on my lap and I don't know what to do. She was at my house in like five minutes and mm-hmm. she came, she took it from me and she put it back. When my mom got home from work that evening, I told her, I said, mom, something's wrong. I don't feel myself. I'm severely depressed. I didn't tell her I just had my stepdad's gun in my lap. She would have freaked out, had me committed, the whole deal. But I told her there was something going on. I'm not myself. So she made appointments to doctors. I got in to see the doctors. And after diagnosing me and they went off through it, they, they diagnosed me with bipolar one disorder, manic depressant. Mm-hmm. Now, 95, 96, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is and was not no, known. It wasn't known like it is today. So when you got out of the military, even if you served in wartime, they basically just gave you your papers and said, if you haven't any psychological problems, go make an appointment with your doctor. Thanks for your service. Goodbye. There was no preventative um, treatment afterwards. I think it's atrocious that that happens because – you know, they must have known. I mean, you know, scientists, doctors, you know, there is plenty of history that shows that we understand how the mind works. And, you know, when you said that you were then discharged from the military and given your papers, I just think, wow, in in some ways, a very clever machine, as in the military, they take these youngsters and they make them into something that is almost out of this world in terms of like a machine, an animal, a, a program. They program these youngsters. Then you serve one or two tours and you're going through pressure that most people possibly wouldn't go through in potentially 20, 30 year period of their life. You go through right. such pressure. You then just discharged and discarded. <laughs> like literally, thanks, buddy. Off you go. 100%. And and of course, I can I'm totally with you that first month you're going, yay, kick up party, let's relax. But you're absolutely right. No wonder you plummeted back down and thought, what now? What what now? You know, absolutely. And, you know, and then once I get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, looking back now. It made sense why I had to excel at everything. I, I was in those manic modes. That I, I couldn't stop. I, I, when I trained, I trained harder and longer than everybody else. I had no off button. I, w- I would just go, go, go. And when we didn't win a game, I would put all the blame on myself. Well, maybe I didn't pitch good enough. Maybe if I just would have ran five, ten more yards, I would have got that touchdown. We would have won. You know, maybe if I wouldn't have took that left hook and dodged it and hit him with the right hand, I could have, I could have won more boxing matches. Like I took everything to blame and to heart that it was my fault. So, and, and my mom, she always just thought I was an emotional kid and I, I was very into what I wanted to do and I was very passionate. So once I get diagnosed, their first thing is let's put you on medicine. And they, they prescribe me medicine. Now I want to say that if you're prescribed any type of psychiatric medicine, psychological medicine, please, please be honest with your doctors. I was never honest with them. I didn't tell them I was drinking alcohol every day. I didn't tell them I was smoking pot. I didn't tell them if I, if I got a chance to take pain pills, I was taking pain pills. I never indulged that to my doctors. So 
over my 20 plus years from 21 up until 44 to where I got finally got into rehab, I was never honest with my doctor. So they never could pinpoint why my medicines never worked for me. Right. They would always, okay, well, these two medicines, maybe they don't work for you in conjunction. Let's try these two over here. Oh, maybe the milligrams we have are off. Let's up the dosages. And that was my cycle for 20 plus years. I would be on and off. Dosages up and down. Well, those don't work. Let's try it with these over here. We don't know what's going on. Let's add this to the to the mix. Mm-hmm. But the entire time, I was never honest with my doctors telling them I was self-medicating myself. So it didn't matter what they put me on. None of it was going to work because that's not how they're designed. Alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. stop that. They, it, they just, it just doesn't work. So, you know, when you think about the body and its capability of of healing, my background is a naturopath and neurodologist and a specialist in natural health and healing. And, you know, if only we all knew then that meditation, (laughs) meditation does the same thing as, you know, medication. It's a different form of medication and it's the quickest way to get you into your center and your heart center. Um, and, and, you know, there they are just kind of giving you more pills to take, more, more medication, right? Yeah. Well, that's, that's what they're, that's what they do. That's what they do. Yeah. That's what they do. Let's just keep giving them to you till we figure it out because there's got to be a concoction out there that can work for you. So we'll just keep playing the game and, and mixing them up and matching them up. And, um, you know, that, that, that went on for the next 21 years. Mm-hmm. So, and and from the age of 21 up until the age of 34, um, I had met my wife. We got married. We had two children at the time. And I had lost my, like, 35th or 36th job from yeah. from getting out of the Marines. And that all stemmed from my mental disorder and drug and alcohol addiction. I just couldn't keep a job. I think the longest I had a job was two years out of that entire span. Um, I would just call out. I would just quit. I would get bored with the job. I just wouldn't go back. And I never pinpointed the reason is because my drug and alcohol addiction, the medicines weren't working. They were either making me crazier or more depressed or more more withdrawn as a person. I didn't want to go outside. You know, I didn't want to just I didn't want to be seen. I was ashamed of myself and my emotions were never. Now, I know people's emotions are never flatlined. We have ups and downs of a normal emotional person. But my emotions were either at the top of the mountain or at the bottom of the ocean. There was no normal up up and down. Yeah. Right, right. There was no normal. It was extreme, either up or down. At the age of 34, you know, my wife's like, you you, you lost another job. What are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I'm really lost. I, I, I really miss sports. I really miss pushing myself and getting that, um, you know, that's a validation that, that I'm, I'm worth something. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I really would, I really would like to fight again. I, I missed that one-on-one competition of it's you and me, not a team effort. It, it's one-on-one. So she gave me a year to go start training for mixed martial arts. And I did. I went and started training. I started getting fights. I was fighting on TV. I was fighting in Atlantic City and Harris Casino. I had sponsors. I was doing really good. My last fight, 
I tore my rotator cuff in three places. And, you know, I get back to the locker room and I go to put my shirt on and I can't lift my arm. It's just done. And I come out and my wife hands me a beer and I grab it with my left hand. Now, I am left-handed as far as writing and drawing, but I do everything else with my right hand. I'm kind of both. And I grab it with my left hand and she looks at me and she's like, why didn't you grab it with your right hand? I'm like, I can't move my arm. And she's like, oh, my gosh. So I go to the doctor that following week, and he confirms I tore my rotator cuff in three places. I have to have major surgery on my rotator cuff. At the age of 32, 33, I think it was, I now have to have major surgery on my rotator cuff. And that starts me on a four-and-a-half-year-long addiction to pain pills mm-hmm. that we're talking 11 years ago, and they would just give them to you. There was no um, – you know, what they have now, what they put in place is a lot harder to get them. You can still get them. But 10, 11 years ago, I would just go every 30 days and say, yeah, my arm still hurts. And they'd say, okay, well, here's another prescription. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a big hoop you do that you have to go through and fill all these forms. They would just literally just fill them back up. And it started off with Percocets. I found that that upset my stomach and made me sick. So they switched to hydrocodone. And then I would go back and say, well, they don't have the kick that the Percocets do. It doesn't upset my stomach, but they just don't, they're not doing what the Percocets did. So ultimately they got me onto Oxycontins. Okay. And, and, this, and that's what you were saying at this point in time, this was for pain relief. But yes. This was, it was, it was more because it was completely numbing you out or, or chilling you out or what, what was it doing? Well, I mean, for me, I had the perfect trifecta. I could drink my beer. I could take my pain medicine and I could smoke my pot. That made me feel normal you know it made me feel like i could function right. through the day and um so I, I was you could yes. then or you could fight i could i was done yeah. i was done my, my wife said uh you're done you're, you're you know you're 33 that's it you had fun that's over <laughs> interestingly enough i don't know if you know this but um so within us, within when we're not in this physical body and when we're in spirit form, we're obviously masculine and feminine. We're both, okay? Um, but when we're in the physical body, our right-hand side is our masculine side and our left-hand side is our feminine side. And so as you were talking, what was coming to me was that it was your soul, your higher self trying to say to you, you're too in your masculine. You're too in your masculine. You're not listening to your intuitive side, your feminine side. You're not. This is you were way, way in the fight, the alpha, the male, the the masculine side. And hence, what happens is when we don't listen to that intuition, when we don't listen to that higher intelligence, eventually, what the soul does is it will take action itself, and it will it will cause an accident or something to take you out of action. And it's so funny, it did on your right hand side, because it was trying to say to you, this is not the way to go. You got to find another way, buddy. And so, oh. so that's why it took you out of that. Wow. I, that, that actually brings light to a lot of things in my life now. I, I am so much more calm and so much more at peace with myself now than I've ever been. So I don't want any, I don't want any conflict. I don't want any arguments. I want everything to be peaceful and, and let's solve the problem, not make another one. Yeah. I, I don't want any of that. Yeah. And that's more the feminine energy. So what should happen is like the feminine and the masculine within us should work together. 
So it's actually the feminine energy is the one that gets the ideas and the, the co-creation and the, oh, this is an exciting project. And it's then the masculine energy that comes in and just allows that to protect, for example. But when we're either in the masculine too much or either in the feminine, it's out of balance. Huh. And so if you ever get, so like whenever I get a pain in my right, on my right hand, I go, okay, what am I being too masculine about? What, what, what's, what's my masculine trying to communicate to me? Or if it's the, okay. if it's the left, I'm like, okay, what, well, yeah. So it's just interesting when you were saying about the right, I thought, wow. And yes, you were, you were really in your masculine, right? Uh, absolutely. I thought that's what men were supposed to do. And, and I've always been that way. So I just thought that's who I was. But the more, I involve into who I am now. I like knowing that I have that there if I need it. I would rather. It doesn't have to run the show. It doesn't have to run the show, but I know if need be, I can defend my family. I can defend myself. I, I can defend my friends if need be, but I don't want that, that energy of, of, uh, alpha all the time. And and in fight or flight response all the time it is so draining. It is so draining. Um, it, it brought anxiety and panic to my life. Um, racing thoughts. It just here I am thinking that's who I'm supposed to be. When in, in reality, it's it's breaking me down physically and mentally. Yeah, it's trying to tell you this is this is not who you're meant to be. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. So you know, I, I, I'm I'm on these pain pills for four years and. I get scared. I, I remember waking up one day and I'm scared. I'm, I'm legitimately scared. I'm like, you know, I'm not taking one pill every four hours. I'm taking, you know, two to three every four hours. I'm running past my prescription two weeks before I get a refill, having to get my friends to get me some other pills to hold me over till the doctor, you know, re-prescribes me. I'm drinking a 12-pack of beer on top of taking all this um, opioids. I'm smoking pot every day. And I legitimately got scared. I was like... This is how people die. I'm like, I'm going to take these pills and drink this beer one night, and I'm not going to wake up the next morning. And and I was kind of okay with it, and that scared me. And I told, I, sorry, was it putting a strain on your marriage? How was your wife? Absolutely, no, yeah. it absolutely was. Um, my wife is a damn saint for being with me throughout this whole thing. Um, and six months into recovery, I asked her, I said, why didn't you ever leave me? Oh. And uh, she said, because I believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. I knew you could always be the man that I once married. And uh, in, I your, just, in your next lifetime together, it'll come back and you will, you know, you'll have the most, you will do some beautiful things for her as you do now, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm internally grateful for that woman. Um, That's so beautiful. She's 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 been there since the beginning, and we 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 got together in '96 when I got in the Marine Corps, and we're still together. And she's been through the best and the worst of me, and she loves me for all of it. And I can't ask for anything more from somebody. Um, Amen. Yeah, I get. Amen. And, right. And I, you know, I, I get scared, and I'm sitting on my bed. And I'm like, you know what? If 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 I'm gonna die from alcohol and drugs, it's not gonna be in my sleep. I just want this pain to end because I don't know how to stop it. And I reach over on my nightstand and I open up my pill bottle, 
and I have 18 Oxycontins in there, and I take all 18 of them, and I drink a 12-pack of beer in like an hour and a half. And I go and I lay in my bed, and I pray, please, God, don't let me wake up tomorrow because I can't live like this anymore. I just want the pain to stop. I don't want to live like this. And I wake up the next day. Tim, was this a physical pain, though, or was this a... Was this an emotional pain? I mean, so physical pain will behind every physical manifestation is an emotional suppression, right? That's that's science that's proven. But in this particular case, where was that pain manifesting? Was it was it in your heart? Was it physical pain or was it what was it? What what talk to me about that pain? So, you know, that's it, it evolved for the first Eight to nine months when I was still in contraction and doing um, uh, physical therapy, it was physical pain. Then I became addicted to the opioids. I I got addicted to the feeling of of what that made me feel like. And then it progressed into an emotional pain of because I knew I didn't need the medicine anymore, but I wanted it. Okay. I, I wanted the medicine because of how it made me feel. It made me feel numb it didn't make me want to face reality of what i had become not only am i an alcoholic but now i'm a drug addict as well and and a major one taking a lot of pills and it's and it took my self-confidence my self-worth my want to live away from me because I, i had fell so deep into this hole i didn't know how to get myself out and i just wanted it to go away I didn't know it was possible to get yourself out and to get help and and recover. So, you know, I I wake up the next day and I'm like, oh, my God, I woke up. Why am I here? And I go into the bathroom and I have my refill of 30 pills and I open up the bottle and I dump the entire bottle down the toilet. And I look look at myself in the mirror and I'm, I'm a mess. I'm crying. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, remember how this day feels. You don't ever want to feel like this ever again. You are never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days, I was the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. The insomnia, the night sweats, the the jittering, the fever, the throwing up, the going to the bathroom, the racing thoughts. The panic attacks, the anxiety, the whole gambit for 10 days. I was throwing up every day. But every single morning when I got up, I looked in the mirror and I said, remember this feeling. We never want to do this again. I was able to stop taking the pain medicine on my own. And it's been 11 years since I've taken any pain medicine. That's amazing. That's true. At that point, and I didn't realize now that I look back that I always have possessed that strength. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't know it until now. That mm-hmm. is a complete example of how powerful our mind is. 100%. And it's, well, actually, uh, like I say, our ego, which is our, our brain and our mind, is actually the weakest part of us. That's the part of us that doesn't want us to be strong. That's the part of us that wants us to be addicted. That's the part of us that doesn't want to rise up and be all we can be because the ego 
doesn't like change and it doesn't like the fact that it knows that we are with the divine within us, with this soul and spirit connected to the divine. We are stronger than we can ever, ever imagine. And that voice that you heard in the morning and looked at, that that was your true strength. That was your power. That was your divine saying, hey, there's there's got to be another way. Right, right. And I, the more I get sober and the more I live in recovery, the more stuff like that happens to me. It's it's overwhelmingly amazing, if that's the best way I can put it. Um, so, you know, I, I get through those 10 days. Go ahead. Yeah, go on, carry on. I get through the 10 days and and I'm sitting at home one day and I'm like, I want to go for a nice ride. You know, I want to get, there's a beautiful park down here that people go fishing and hiking and boating and walk their dogs and do picnics. And it's a really beautiful reservoir. And I'm driving through the reservoir and I'm crying. I'm like, I still don't know my purpose in life. What am I here for? Can you please send me a sign that I'm not alone, that there's something else out there in this universe that, that watches over me? Like, not, not, not Jesus or God, just something else that's out there. Please send me a sign. And I get around, I'm driving through the, to the park and I get to this tree where my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his vehicle and hit the tree and unfortunately died at the age of 18. And at this tree, his parents put a, a, a picture of him up on the tree. You can set flowers there. There's a book you can write to it. It's still there to this day. Wow. And I get all, I get to the tree and I park my truck and I get out and I go up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, man, I'm, I'm lost. I, I need help. I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I survived those, taking those pills and drinking the alcohol. Can you please just send me some type of sign? telling me that I'm not alone, that something watches over me and I have a reason to live. Anything, please something. And I get back in my truck and I'm crying and I'm driving out of the park. And I get to like the, almost the edge of the park where you'd actually drive out. And I pull over to the side of the road, but not on the side where the traffic is supposed to be flowing. I pull over on the opposite side of the car on a road where traffic's coming to me. And I'm sitting there and I'm crying and about five, 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and now we're, we're hood to hood because I'm on the opposite side of the street. Yeah. And, and this man gets out of his vehicle and he opens the back door and he grabs his dog and he's about to go walk over to the water. I guess go walk his dog. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, man, he looks awfully familiar. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me. It was my best friend who died in 1996, it was his father. Wow. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him since December 27th, 1996. This is March 16th, 2017, 21 years later. Mm-hmm. I get out of my truck. I go over to him. I said, Mr. Bill, and he looks at me, and he's like, Timmy, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict, and I, and I fall to the curb, and I'm crying. He walks over to me. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in North Carolina on a family reunion trip. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here this morning and walk the dog at 10 a.m. I truly believe I was sent here to see you this morning. And I said, Mr. Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to send me a sign. 
and we hugged and we talked for 15 minutes. You know, he told me everything was going to be okay. You know, just everything's going to be okay. And I get in my truck and I'm driving out and I have this, wow, you know, everything's going to be okay. I have a purpose. There's something watching over me. And immediately. Synchronicity is just, yeah. And then immediately my addictive brain steps in and says, well, then why do you why do you have to stop drinking? If you're being watched and something is making sure you're OK, nothing's going to happen to you so you can continue your lifestyle. So for the next four years, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank in my entire life. Wow. Because now, you know, I don't have the pain pills. So now I'm searching for that feeling that the pain pills gave me. So I stopped drinking beer and I started drinking fireball whiskey. And. My brain again stepped in and said, don't buy a big bottle of whiskey because then you exactly know how much alcohol you're drinking. Buy the little miniatures so you can drink them and throw them out your window or throw them in the trash and you won't have any uh, calculation on how much you're actually drinking. So isn't the, isn't the ego incredible? How the manipulation? It, it is. It's amazing. And, and when you, when you're in that addictive personality or you're in that mental state of mind you listen to those voices unfortunately because you 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 think you have lost power within yourself to control them so you listen to that 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 voice that pops in and i listened and it started off with just a couple shots during the day and then i would go by four or five miniatures and the last year and a half before i actually went to rehab I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures per day. Each miniature is two and a half shots. So I'm drinking upwards of 50 to 70 shots of fireball whiskey every single day. I would wake up and go to the liquor store immediately. I would drink 10 miniatures before one o'clock in the afternoon. At 3.30 when I got off work, I went right back to the liquor store. I would get 10 more miniatures and drink all those before 8 p.m. And then I would go back to the liquor store and get five or ten more and drink them till I passed out, woke up the next day, and just did the cycle over and over and over again. What got me? Your liver? Did your so, liver? How your liver and how you didn't end up with, you know, cirrhosis of the liver is unbelievable, right? And when I got to, which I'm about to get to, it's amazing on. I truly believe I'm here for a purpose because of that, those reasons. Um, the, I get I get a brand new truck. I'm driving to the liquor store and I hit something and I come home and I'm like, I hit something. I'm going to bed. I don't want to deal with it. And I go to sleep. I wake up the next morning like every good alcoholic. Good morning. I'm going to go to the store. You want some milk and bread? Or what do we need for breakfast? And my wife's just looking at me. She's like, how are you going to do that? And I said, in my brand new truck in the driveway, and she said, Tim, go outside and look at your vehicle. And I go outside. My, my side passenger mirror is completely gone. It's off the truck. My front right tire is up underneath of my truck. I don't even know how I drove it home. And she pops her head out the window, and she's like, right out the door, I'm sorry. She says, you, you don't remember last night, do you? And I said, no, I don't. She said, you could have killed somebody or killed yourself. She's like, Tim, you can't be here anymore. You have to go figure this out, but I don't want you near the children. You, you've you got to go. Pack some stuff up. you got to go. I don't want you home. 
So I call my friend and I'm like, hey, can I come to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. And in a couple of days, I can go back home because, you know, everything will be okay. Yeah. Yeah, So I get to my buddy's house and and he's like, well, buddy, you just got kicked out of your house. He's like, we might as well go to the bar and drink because now you got a reason to drink. I'm like, you know what? That's a great idea. So we go to the bar. This is less than 16 hours later. And I get completely drunk. As I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody at a red light. And I get out of the vehicle and I look at the guy. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, I'm okay. I'm like, well, your truck's okay. He had a, a tow hitch coming out the back of his truck. So his truck didn't get touched, but my, now my front of my bumper's all snatched in. I'm like, well, you're okay. Your truck's okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back. I got my truck and I took off. I get back to my buddy's house and I'm like, I, I, I can't stay here, man. I got to go be by myself. I got to go just think and be by myself. I leave his house. I stop at the liquor store. I get 10 more miniatures. And I go and I sit at a park and ride um, where people park their vehicles and catch a train to go to work. And then they come back and I turn my phone off and I sit there for 48 hours. Wow. Two days just drinking and passing out and listening to sad music and putting myself through the ringer of my family's better off without me. My kids are better off with a, with a, a, a better daddy. You know, my mom. She deserves a better son. I'm a piece of crap. You know, I can't make anything happen. I'm not worth anything. I should just leave this world because I, I don't know what I'm doing in it. And I did the whole pity party me for 48 hours. And I turned my phone on March 5th, 2021 at 7 after 10. Two minutes later, after having my phone off for 48 hours, the phone rings. And I look down and I don't recognize the number. And I pick it up, and it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak, who is uh, a member of the Jackass team and Viva La Bam. He's a professional skateboarder, and he's now at this point has six six years sober. And he calls me, and, and he's like, what in the F are you doing? And I say, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm drunk, and I'm tired. And he says, good, that's what you need. He said, I just got off the phone with your mom and your wife. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening. You're going to go down to West Palm Beach, Florida. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers, and you're going to go get the help you need. Just please send me. He said, call me when you pass security at the airport, because I want to make sure you're going to get on the plane, and you're not going to catch a cab and leave once you get dropped off. I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll go, and I hang up the phone. Ten minutes later, my wife calls me. She says, hey, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Please come home, take a shower, pack, try to eat something and take a nap. I had about four to five hours before I had to be at the airport. I'm like, okay. So I go home, I shower, I pack. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. My anxiety is through the roof. I'm having panic attacks. My mind's racing. I'm like, how in the hell did I get my life to this point where I've got to go to rehab? How long am I going for? 30, 60, 90 days, six months? I don't know. And my my mind's just racing and all these thoughts are coming into my head. And my mental illness and addictive personality steps in. It grabs me by the hand and walks me to the basement of my home. and throws a rope around my neck 
and stands me up on a bucket in the corner of my basement in the dark and says, just take, just jump off, just end the pain. You can't do this anymore. And I go to the basement of my home and I throw a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket. And about a minute, maybe two go by and I'm just standing there crying. And my wife comes down the basement steps and she sees me in the corner of the basement and she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I just want the pain to stop and I don't know how to make it stop. I just want it to stop. And she says, Tim, do you know what this will do to your girls? Please, please get down and get on that plane and everything is going to be okay. Just please get down. And I sat there for about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and I take the rope off my neck, and I fall to the floor, and I'm crying. And I go upstairs, and I call my friend. I said, hey, um, I'm going. I, I got to get on that plane. If I don't get on that plane this evening, I'm going to die from this disease. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, I don't want that. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Pass me. Call me when you pass security. So... My mom comes and picks me up, takes me to the airport. I get past security, and I call him. I say, hey, Brandon, I'm, I got 30 minutes for the plane leaves. I just want you to know I'm going to get on the plane. And he says, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down in the seat waiting for them to call me to board the plane, as I sit down at the seat at the airport, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that came over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I had never felt in my entire life. It engulfed my entire body. All my pain went away, my depression, my racing thoughts, my anxiety, my panic attack. Everything left my body. And I hear this very calming female voice in my head and it says everything's going to be okay at that moment my mind completely shifted my thoughts completely changed and i truly believed my addiction was lifted from me that day at the airport i got to rehab fully committed to doing whatever they asked me to do I, I, I meditated. I, I did spiritual work. I, um, I worked out with the personal trainer. I changed my diet. I journaled. I shared. I went to every single meeting that they asked me to go to. I went to extra meetings for military members and first responders dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. I did everything that they've asked me to do. It, something happened to me at that airport. I truly believe that my addiction was lifted from me. And if I were not to acknowledge that experience that I had at the airport, I would have been wasting this gift of life that was, was given to me. When I got to the rehab and the doctors took all my signs, he looks at me and he says, your blood pressure is 167 over 140. You are on the verge of having a stroke. Your liver and kidneys are four times what they should be. He said, Tim, if you would have not have come in this month and you would have waited another month or two, the damage to your internal organs would have been irreversible and you would have died of alcoholism within the next year and a half. You wouldn't have made it to the age of 47. 
He said, your timing of coming in this rehab is impeccable. I can't explain the timing of you coming in here at the exact time in your life to be able to change your your everything in your life. Definitely your future, yeah. That was at that moment that I completely stopped thinking about coincidences. I, I truly started to believe that everything happens to us in the exact time that we need it to happen for a reason. And that voice that you had, that was probably your feminine side, just saying it's going to be okay. You've got it was, it was the most amazing, calming, caring voice that I've ever heard in my entire it was like somebody was hugging me at the same time when they said everything is going to be okay and just it all left my body it all left my mind it was like and, and it just cleaned the slate of my thoughts and gave me a new perspective of life it's it gave so, me gratitude it's so incredible isn't it when you when you get those moments and those epiphanies and I remember in a situation that happened to me um, when I was going through, listen, nothing as severe as what you're going to, but it's all relative, right? And when I was firefighting like a million pounds worth of debt, my ex-husband had left me with, and I was sitting there one day and I was crying because creditors were screaming um, at me for money. And, you know, uh, there was a repossession order in place for my house and it was me and the girls. And I was like, how am I how am I going to you know, what am I going to do here? And everyone's screaming at me for money and there was just no money. And I remember picking up an angel card and it said music, listen to music. And I started shouting at the universe saying, what are you talking about? You want me to listen to music? How can I listen to music? This is just so ridiculous. And I said, I need to get out of the house. And I remember get, leaving the house and my eyes were swollen from crying and my head was throbbing. And I got in the car and I turned on the engine and I heard, so I've heard this song so many times before, Heal Over by Katie Tunstall. But at that moment in time, it's like I heard these words for the first time. And it said, you're going to be fine, but it's going to take time. In the meantime, come over here, lady, and dry your tears. And just like that, I knew it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So these moments are so precious, aren't they? Because, but they're so powerful because you just, there's a knowing, you know, it's going to be fine, right? Yeah. And it makes me think about. How many times that people receive these messages and they ignore them? Yes. I write that it's, in my book. I write, I say, it, it, the nudges and the messages, and so many times I ignored them. You know, I, I compare it to um, when you buy a car, a certain car, say you buy a Jeep, and you get to a red light, and you see five Jeeps at the red light. You're like, where are the hell are all these Jeeps? When you open your mind to receive these signs, the more aware of you are, when they happen to you and the more you're just you're open to them happening and you see them more often and you know i i used to be like why did i have to go through 27 years of alcoholism mental health disorder and addiction and then my perspective changed it didn't happen to me it happened for me 100 i had to go through that to experience it yeah, and your ego is very strong, so you were fighting it all the way until eventually 
your higher self took over. Yeah, and um, I am so much more uh, grounded today. Um, I I can look in the mirror and love the person that looks back, and I cannot tell you the last time I was able to do it. I had to have been a teenager, and even then, I don't truly know if I really loved the person looking back because I didn't know who I was at that time and age. I'm grateful for what I had to go through because I now know that it was for a reason. And I truly believe my purpose is now is to share my story with as many people as possible so that they know that they're not alone, that their pain is not theirs alone. Other people understand what they're going through, that they can recover. There's help out there and we can ultimately live the life that we've always dreamed of. You know, know? I mean, you're so right. We're here to be of service to humanity. And I think your story is so, so powerful. And if you can help just one person, just even one life get sober and understand that they're so more power, so much more powerful without that substance or without that addiction. How amazing is that? It's it's a gift that no monetary value could ever be put on. It, it, it is a feeling that you, you, you're, you're worth, you're worth the life that has been given to you. And it's so precious. It, I, I, I have to give back what was freely given to me. Um, I feel as if it's, it's my purpose now in life. I, I, I must show people that no matter how long, how dark, of a place you've lived in, we can recover. Don't give up hope, because hope stands for hold on, pain ends. Yeah. It uh-huh. always, it always ends. It always ends. You just have to hold on long enough to see that shift in your life. You know, it's like the waves coming in and out. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they crash on the beach, and sometimes they're nice and calm. But they always come and go. Just hold on in that special time that, that you're going through and everything will be okay. You know what? I, I th- sorry, go on. <laughs> I was going to say, you know what I think is so amazing, Tim, is that we, we choose our burdens. Okay. We choose our challenges and what, what challenge is acceptable for one person isn't for another. But when I think about what you chose so you chose this 27 years so you chose some pretty intense learnings some pretty intense lessons and you know 27 years of brutal addiction um and depression and suicide attempts and battling with your mind body and soul for 27 years is a huge adversity to face you know it's like climbing Mount Everest 5,000 times over and you did it you did you tapped into the most magnificent power ever within you I mean how you're still standing is beyond me to be honest but not only are you standing you actually I meant to ask how long were you in rehab for how long did that take Um, I was in there for 32 days okay yeah so I did 32 days of your life, no doubt. It was the most amazing 32 days of my life. Yeah. Uh, it, it truly was. Um, I needed to focus on me. 
I needed to find myself again and I needed to work on myself. And it was, it was, I want to say vacation comes to mind, but it wasn't a vacation, but it was a vacation from the life. Yes. And, And it made me who I am today. Um, and, and without that, I, I'm, I'm internally, I'm ter- internally grateful. When you were in there and you were, when you were giving to yourself during those 32 days, were you, were you able to get to the point where you realized that you no longer needed to search for external validation and that you're perfect just the way you are? Things happened to me in that rehab that I still cannot explain, um, spiritual things that just continued to um, show me that I was there at the exact moment in my life and meeting certain people in the rehabs and at their certain moments of life that we, we shared certain things. Um, you know, there was this gentleman who every morning started a morning group before the actual facility started a morning group. And it was, it was a simple, he, re, he read a daily reflection, um, a word for the day and then a prayer for the day. And he just came up to me one day and he's like, Hey, um, what are you doing at eight o'clock in the morning? You know, after breakfast, and I'm like, nothing. I usually just go sit and wait for the first meeting. The first meeting started at 9 a.m. He says, well, I have this little pre meeting before the meetings. If you'd like to join me tomorrow. And I was like, you know what? I, why not? I'll join tomorrow. And I get up the next morning and I go over there and he comes over and he's like, thank you for coming. You're the first person that said that you were going to come and actually showed up. Well, and I was like, absolutely. I, I, I said I was going to come. And he read the word for the day and it was hope. And then he read a, a daily reflection and then he read a small prayer. And it just it felt right. It felt something I needed to do. So for the remainder three weeks that I was there, I went to these morning meetings. I get to the morning meeting one day and it's his last day. And I have about 10 more days of my rehab. And this was his last day he was leaving. And uh, he says, you know, this morning meeting really has touched a lot of people. It's helped a lot of people here. And he goes, and I would like this meeting to keep going on. He goes, so I want to leave this book to somebody to continue doing these meetings. He's like, and he looks over to me and goes, Tim, I choose you to run these morning meetings. He says, I, I see the way people respect you in this facility. I see the way that you're a leader. And I see the way that people come up and ask you for advice while you're here. And he said, I'd truly be honored if you take this book and continue this morning meeting while I'm gone. And when you're gone, on your last day, you pass this book off to somebody that you think will continue these morning meetings. And I, I, I teared up. I said, thank you so much. I said, why, why did you choose me? He says, I didn't choose you. He chose you, and I'm just a messenger, and hands me the book. I took that to heart. I, I was like, wow, you know, if something's happening here greater than myself. Yeah. So for the, for the next 10 days, I did that morning meeting. We started with five people in that morning meeting. The morning of Easter, I went to go do the morning meeting. There were so many people that showed up that they had to open up conference room A. 52 people showed up for that morning meeting. Wow. It was so big that the counselors had to come in and and make sure everybody was safe. 
a woman that had been there for rehab was a professional singer. She got up and sang three beautiful songs. I read my daily reflection. I read a, a, a page out of the uh, Bible and the counselors came up to me afterwards and said that was an amazing, amazing tribute to, to what we do here in rehab that you were able to bring all these people together for one common purpose and one common goal. And uh, they said, we've never seen anything like that. And, I couldn't believe the response I got from being myself, yeah. being a genuine, caring person. Um, being authentic you. Be, yes, being authentic. You know, I was never used to getting the response. I was always used to, you know, being the popular guy or being the good guy at sports and getting a response like that, but never a response from a genuine place that came from within. It was a different feeling that I've never felt. Yeah, because you weren't doing the searching for external validation. You were just being open from the heart as you were and as you are. It's a very different thing, isn't it? When you're just being, yes. when you're being authentically you versus when you're trying. Yeah. And you know what was not involved? My ego. 100%. It never, I, it never is when we're being authentic. Because <laughs> right, I, I wasn't expecting anything back. I was just doing it because I felt as if it was the right thing to do. And the response I got back, I believe, is bigger than anything my ego has ever given me. And you know, another thing that just sprung to mind when you were talking about that, you know, I know this, this journey of being in the, in, in the public life for you is a, is a new journey, but I also think that that gift, like nothing happens by mistake. There are no coincidences in life. Never, never, never. And what I think is so fascinating is how just the divine and circumstances were just we're just propelling you. So the guy comes to you and says, you know, I want you to take this over and, and you take it to heart and do it. And then suddenly you're, it was orchestrated that you're in front of a bigger audience than you ordinarily would be. And now, you know, that is again a testament and sign to say, this is where you're going. There's a big audience there waiting for you, you know, and you've got to stand up and you've got to stand forth because there's a big audience out there waiting to hear your teachings, waiting to hear your inspiration, waiting to hear your advice and your support and your strength so that they can too heal and they can too stand up and rise up and be the best they can be. How amazing is that? I've never thought of it like that. And but that's exactly why. Well, how amazing. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. I never, never looked at it like that. And yeah. the fact that it, it, it was preparing me for what it has in store for me is, uh, what's coming they're overwhelming oh don't don't get me started <laughs> it's, it's it's truly overwhelming i never in a million years expected my life to change this month in 17 months and i never in a million years experience uh thought of the opportunities that keep coming my way through this journey um you know i never expected to do podcasts i, I just I was three months in and I said, you know, I just, I got to share my story with one person. I just got to share it. And I do this podcast and, um, 
I wasn't expecting anything. I just wanted to share my story. And four days after I do this podcast, four days after it airs, sorry, four days after the podcast airs, I'm sitting in my truck getting ready to load a table up to take it to a rehab center. And my phone rings and, and there's a gentleman on the other side of the phone and he says, is this Tim? And I said, yes, who's this? And he says, this is Tony. And I'm like, I don't know any Tonys. I, I, he said, um, from the Marine Corps, we served together in 1995. Oh, wow. This is, this is 2021. And I said, hey, man. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm not doing good at all. He said, uh, I've been addicted to opioids for 18 years. He's like, I've lost jobs. I've lost marriages. Um, I can't keep it together. I, I've contemplated suicide. I'm just a lost person. He said, I needed to call you. I got your number off of Facebook. I hope it's okay. I said, sure, man. What's going on? He said, I needed you to know that I heard your podcast. I live in Ohio and I live in Maryland. He said, uh, I was about to give up. He said, and what you said about hope and not giving up. He said, it has given me the strength and courage to change my life. He said, I'm now four days sober after 18 years of addiction. He said, and I truly believe now that I have the power to take my, my life over. It has been six and a half months now and he's still sober. And when I got off that phone call, I cried for like 10 minutes and I said, wow, there's, there's something here. Yeah. I just, and not only did I help one person, it's not a coincidence that I helped somebody that I personally knew and served with 21 years earlier. Yeah. How amazing is that, that I just happened to touch somebody that I personally knew? How many other people can I help? How many other people can I touch? So that's what started this podcast journey. Today, you are my 54th podcast within 17 months of my sobriety. As soon as we're done, I hop on another podcast at 1130. And then at 2 o'clock, I have another one. (laughs) But, you know, and you have to trust as well that your audience Every person who listens, so every person who listens to my show and this particular episode, it's no mistake that they're there. They're listening for a purpose, just from conversation. And and it's 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 an amazing way to be of service to humanity. And talking about which, because I want to talk about because I know you've got amazing things going on and you've been on these podcasts and you are you are gifting yourself and, and freely to your, your audience out there. But you're also involved in some amazing new projects, aren't you? And you've got it's you're now heading up a mental and addiction support group, right? With a partner, a non profit organization. Tell us a little bit about that so that when the listeners if listeners want to reach out to you or find out what you're doing, of course I'm going to leave the information in the episode resources. But tell us a little bit about this new project that you're doing. Absolutely. So uh, a couple of months ago, I, 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 I get friended by um, a woman named Sandra, and she says, I, I have this 5013 nonprofit organization for mental health and addiction awareness. And I would like, would you like to be a partner up with us and, you know, do some videos, um, say some things and tag us and, and bring more awareness to mental health and addiction? And I said, absolutely. And, and she said, and, I, and we haven't had a podcast guest yet. Would you like to be our first podcast guest? And I said, absolutely. So we ended up doing that. Now it's, I think it's about eight, nine months later. 
There's 20 partners. There's now 20 partners of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a licensed 5013 nonprofit organization. They do summits and they speak all over the country, Canada. Um, we bring awareness to mental health and addiction. And starting September, the first week of September, there are now 10 peer support groups that we are all heading. I'm doing men- mental health and addiction. Some people are doing spousal abuse. Some people are doing um, eat, you know, eating addiction. We all have something specific that we're doing and heading, and it's open to the public. Um, I'm going live on Instagram um, and Facebook, and it's completely open forum um, for that you can join, you can listen, you can um, you, you can be be a part of if you have something to say. If it's personal and you don't want the people in the actual group to hear, you can contact us after the meeting and we can talk one-on-one. Um, if you find yourself lost and you just need to listen for the day and you don't want to speak, you can do that as well. But it's all free. It's all there for anybody who just needs that extra helping hand um, when, when they feel as if they're alone. We're, we're going to be there for you and we're going to really try to help and support as many people as possible. Um, once this gets kicked off in the next month, we're going to start um, offering coaching opportunities if you need a life coach or a mental health coach, because some of us that are in this program are licensed yeah. mental health coach. Yes, they actually have their licenses. Um, so we'll be able to cover that aspect of us. Um, I, I'm going to start doing more uh, life changes as far as fitness and diet. Um, which is which has been a huge part of my mental health. Um, so I, I'm gonna. I used to be a personal trainer. I used to have my license. So I think I'm gonna go back and get that recertified. Um, and just I, I want to help as many aspects as possible. And through this organization, Rockstar Testimony, it has given me a bigger platform to be able to do this. And I'm I'm so grateful for Sandra and Dusty, who were the founder and co-founder, that they started this nonprofit. And we're able to reach much, much more people than just me, myself, could have ever done. You know what? They say the audience is ready, right? That's it. That's amazing. So I'm going to ask you one last question because I know you've got to go on to another podcast show. But if you were to give anyone out there advice now, not even necessarily people who are struggling with addiction, but just if people are feeling overwhelmed, if they're feeling lost or they're feeling alone, and they have their own challenges going on, whatever they may be, whether that's a financial challenge, whether it's a, a mental health challenge, whether it's an eating disorder or a relationship issue. What piece of inspirational advice would you give them to know that they can get through what they're going through? Know that you are not alone, that what you are going through is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing that people do not experience. We all have our own ups and downs in life. Don't be ashamed of what you're going through. Don't be afraid of what somebody else's opinion is going to be of what you're going through. Don't let that stop you asking for help. The help is out there. There's always somebody out there to listen. You are loved. You are needed in this world. The chance that you were born is one in 400 trillion. We have all already won the lottery. We're all unique and special. 
and the world is waiting for your uniqueness and your special talents to show the world. And, and don't be afraid to be yourself. Love yourself. Love that person that looks back in the mirror because you are an extremely special, kind person that deserves everything that you've ever wanted in life. Don't give up hope because everything changes and everything will be okay. Amen to that. Amen to that. That's amazing. We need to get you back on because there's so many, because of this subject, there are so many different aspects that we could cover, even what you just said, as in just being born into this incarnation. That in itself is just a miracle. So, Tim, we will definitely get you back on the show. It's been such a pleasure and such an honor and really insightful and as always, it just inspires me so much to listen to people who have gone through such incredible adversity and come through the other side. And so thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad you did. Thank you for having a platform for me to be able to share and others like myself to share our experiences, to reach people who, who need to hear this message today. Like you said, there's somebody even if it's one that's going to hear what I had to say today that hopefully could help them through their time in need. And thank you for having the, uh, the platform for me to be able to do it. I'm truly honored and humbled to be on your show and, and it's such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Wow. What a conversation that was. I'm pretty sure you're on the edge of your seats or you've been riding the same roller coaster of emotions that Tim and I had during our conversation what a story. I mean, gosh, at times I was tearful, at other times I was elated, at other times I was shocked. I'm sure you went through the same sort of process. What a beautiful soul and such an outstanding person Tim is. And what incredible inner strength he has. I mean, and how that's helped him overcome such huge challenge and adversity. If anyone listening is going through personal struggles or feeling out of their depth and overwhelmed, please, please, please feel free to reach out to us for support so that we can help or we can help you find the right support that you need. And or if you'd like to connect and speak with Tim directly, you'll find all his details in today's resource episodes. So reach out, we're here. So here we are at the end of another episode. The weekends arrive, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and please remember how truly amazing, perfect, powerful and gorgeous you are. We'll be back soon, but for now, much love.